We spent the last five weeks basking in the glory of our spiritual blessings in Christ. Paul reminded us in verses 3 through 14 of all of the spiritual blessings that we have as a result of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We were chosen by God. We were adopted as sons. We were redeemed by the blood of Christ, forgiven of our sin, lavished with grace upon grace upon grace. We were given wisdom and insight into the mystery of God's will. We were given an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, and we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who declares that every single one of God's promises will be yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Wow. Blessing upon blessing upon blessing. What Paul does this morning, there's a shift in our text. What Paul does is he moves from recounting all of our immeasurable blessings in Christ and begins to pray for those young, growing believers there in Ephesus that they would grow in a knowledge and an understanding of exactly what it is that they've been given. They've been given a treasure in Christ, blessing upon blessing. Paul prays for them that God would reveal to them how they might live in light of the very blessings which they have been given. Too many Christians are like the late newspaper and magazine publishing mogul William Hurst. Hurst passed away in 1951, but during his lifetime, he invested millions upon millions of dollars acquiring rare art from around the globe. He owned Greek vases and Italian furniture and Oriental carpets and Renaissance vestments, priceless paintings, and an extensive library of rare books and manuscripts that were signed by their original authors. It was told that one day Mr. Hurst learned of some notable pieces of art that he did not have, which he desired to acquire for his own possession. Willing to spare no expense, Hurst sent his agent abroad to search for and recover those masterpieces. And after months of relentless searching, his agent returned and reported that he had indeed finally found those prized treasures. Where are they? Mr. Hurst asked. To which his agent replied, Sir, they're already in your warehouse. You see, sadly, Hurst, like many Christians, had been frantically searching for treasures that he already owned. Such is the case with us at times. And so Paul, having recounted all the glorious spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ, he now switches gears and prays that God will give us spiritual wisdom and understanding and insight that we would appreciate and appropriate the very blessings that we possess in Christ. With that being said, by way of just some brief introduction this morning, let me encourage you to stand with us if you have the ability as we turn our attention to our text for this morning. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19, pins the following words. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great 
might. You may be seated. There's four things that I think Paul clearly communicates in our text this morning that we need to know to understand, be growing in, and be appropriating to our lives. In light of all that's been accomplished for us, in light of all that has been lavished upon us by way of spiritual blessing, Paul now wants us to grow deeper in an understanding of what it is that we've been given in Christ. And we need to know four things. Number one, and this is the overarching or the umbrella piece of knowledge. We need to know the heart of God intimately. We need to know the heart of God intimately. Paul begins in verse 15 by saying, for this reason. That's an interesting way to start the text. These three words tell us what it is that prompts the prayer that is to follow. You see, at the time of his writing, at the time that Paul penned this letter, he had not been in Ephesus for some five or six years now. He spent almost three years there laboring, sharing the gospel, setting up the church there at Ephesus, and now he has been gone for five or six years. But though he wasn't there physically, he certainly wasn't disconnected from all the Lord was doing there. He received word of the vibrant, growing faith that characterized the Ephesian believers. He had heard that they heard the word of truth. That they believed into Christ. That they were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And they began to bear the fruit of their conversion. But what was that fruit? Look at your Bible. Paul says, I have heard about your, number one, faith in the Lord Jesus. And number two, your love Toward all the saints. You see, faith is the expression of our love toward God. Faith is the expression of the believer's love and trust in God. Faith speaks of the vertical relationship. Love, on the other hand, is the expression of a proper relationship with others. It speaks to our horizontal relationship. What Paul is telling us is, guys, I have gotten word, even in my absence, that you've been truly converted and that you're bearing the fruit of knowing Christ savingly. One, that you're growing in your understanding of Him. You're growing in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're growing in your love toward one another. Two telltale signs of genuine conversion are a growing faith in Christ and growing love for others. As a matter of fact, the former produces the latter. How did Jesus say that people will know that we are His disciples? One way of many is they would know by our love for each other. The magnet that draws sinners to Christ also draws them to each other. The rosebud of faith, so to speak, in the Ephesians had burst into the flower of love toward one another. Just as you and I are pleased when our children act in obedience and love, so Paul was encouraged to hear of the fruit that was being born in his spiritual children, evident there in the church at Ephesus. And so what does Paul do with his encouragement? What does he do with his gratitude? Well, he gives honor to whom honor is due. You see, the fruit and the faith and the love that characterized the church at Ephesus were a result of the marvelous grace of God. You see, their their love for the Lord Jesus Christ and their love for one another was not a result of Paul's great labors among them. Paul was just an instrument. He was just the conduit, so to speak, of the gospel message. But honor is to be given to whom honor is due. 
the, the faith in Jesus Christ and the love towards one another that was evident in the life of those young, vibrant, growing believers there in the church at Ephesus was a result of the grace of God. As such, Paul turns his thanksgiving heavenward. Look at your Bible. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. You know, it's probably true that there's a little bit of hyperbole here in this verse. Paul actually pray without ceasing. When Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians to pray without ceasing, does that, does that actually literally mean to pray without ceasing? It means to live a lifestyle that is characterized by prayer. But I'll tell you what. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Those 14 words certainly challenge my prayer life. I want you to notice two things concerning Paul's discipline of prayer. First, I want you to notice the regularity of his prayers. He said, I do not cease to give thanks for you. You know, a study of Paul's prayers through his letters reveals that his discipline of prayer was planned, it was systematic, it was organized. And it was tireless. You study Paul's prayers through his letters, and you will see a man who was disciplined, planned, systematic, organized, and tireless in his prayer life. Secondly, I want you to notice, and you'll see this as we move our way through the text this morning, but the specificity with which he prays. You'll see that Paul prayed for very specific things that he wanted his readers and us to know and to understand. As a matter of fact, it's interesting to note that not, not a single one of Paul's prison letter prayers, there were, there were three letters that Paul wrote while in prison, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. All three of those wrote while he was incarcerated in some form or shape. And not a single prayer that exists in those prison letters did Paul ever request material things for those whom he prayed for. His emphasis was always on spiritual growth and spiritual understanding and a growth in Christ-like character. You see, Paul didn't request that God give his recipients what they didn't have. Rather, he prayed that God would make known to them or reveal to them what they already possessed in Christ. And if you're ever stuck knowing what to pray or how to pray for others, just make a list of biblical prayers and pray those. Pray those. Pray the Psalms for others. You want a prayer that God will answer every time? Pray God's God's word for you, for yourself, and for others. You know what 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says? 1 John 5, 14 and 15. would commend it to your memory. John says, this is the confidence we have in approaching him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, we know we have that which we've asked of him. How do we know we're praying according to God's will? You pray God's word. You pray God's word, you're praying according to God's will. And that's a prayer that he'll always answer. Maybe not in our time frame or in our, according to our timetable, but God will always answer the prayer that is according to his will and according to his word. You can never go wrong praying scripture. I want you to notice, though, that Paul prayed with great regularity and he prayed with great specificity. After acknowledging the Ephesians' conversion and subsequent growth in faith and love, Paul begins his prayer here in verse 17. And here's what he prays. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Now, let me me just say this. 
This verse, verse 17, is absolutely dripping with theological content. We could spend the rest of our time together this morning just talking about verse 17. But we've got more ground to cover, and so I want to draw your attention solely or exclusively to the request of the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. What's Paul asking for here? He's asking that God would, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, increase in the Ephesian believers knowledge and understanding of two things. Number one, who He is. Who God is. Paul is asking, he's asking God, that the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge would reveal to those young, growing, vibrant believers who God is, and secondly, what he has done for them in Christ. One of the things I think we learn from this here is that we, we are always, at every point in time, dependent, 100% dependent upon the Holy Spirit to know God. We can't gut it out on our own. No amount of reading, no, no theological library, no, no seminary training will ever impart a knowledge of God that impacts and influences our heart and our lives unless the Holy Spirit takes God's Word and implants it deeply there and produces fruit. We are dependent upon the Holy Spirit to know God. We refer to this as the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit. He takes God's Word and, and helps us to understand it in our hearts and in our minds. And then He helps us to live it out. Gives us the grace to live it out. Keep your finger there in Ephesians chapter 1, but turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I want to show this to you here, just to undergird the fact that we are dependent upon the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit to even know God intimately and personally, to know the heart of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul, speaking about the truth-revealing ministry of the Holy Spirit, he says this, Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Here's the point that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. But it is the Spirit of God that helps us understand the things that have been freely given to us by God. Before his ascension, Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit to his disciples, saying, These things I have spoken to you while I have been with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all these things. He will bring to remembrance all that I have taught you. The Ephesian believers, they had already received the promised Holy Spirit. They received that at their conversion, as we have if we know Christ savingly. And they are, just as we are, dependent upon that same Holy Spirit for wisdom and revelation as it pertains to knowing God. Now, new revelation. I'm not seeking a new revelation. What the Spirit of God is doing is revealing the written Word of God to our hearts and our minds. The canon is closed. Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. We're not seeking any new revelation. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit, takes God's revealed, completed Word and helps us understand it and helps us live it. 
You see, the Christian's highest privilege is to know God. God, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, said this. He said, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the mighty man boast in his strength or the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this one thing, that he knows and understands me, for I am the Lord. And I exercise justice, kindness, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. What God is telling us there is if you want to boast about something, there is only one thing that you can boast about. That one thing is that you know me. Everything else is sinking sand. That you know me. That you know me. You see, the atheist claims that there is no God to know. The agnostic proposes that if God exists, we can't know him. But the Christian, on the other hand, knows that he and anyone else, for that matter, can't understand much of anything else apart from knowing God. If you don't start with God as the source and the origin, everything else will be skewed. Just turn on the news. Jesus even equated eternal life with knowing God. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Friends, if eternal life is equated with knowing God by faith, then there shouldn't be any priority in this life that outweighs our priority to pursue knowing God intimately. And so let me ask you this question, and it's one that's challenged me this week because I've had to sit and wrestle with it for the last 168 hours. But if we were just to look at the last 168 hours of our lives, would that 168 hours, last Sunday to this Sunday, reveal that our number one pinnacle priority is the pursuit of knowing Christ intimately? And that's what Paul desired in his testimony in Philippians chapter 3, right? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Give me Jesus. Everything else is rubbish. Give me Jesus. I want to know Him. And so as we look at as we evaluate our own priorities just over the last week, is it true of us, can it be said of us, that our number one pinnacle priority has been that of a, of a vigorous pursuit of knowing Christ? I mean, oftentimes, and when I say oftentimes, I speak of me. I I am the guy in the crosshairs here. Oftentimes, we give ourselves, specifically our time and our energy, to things that have very little eternal significance. I'll never forget, the gentleman that led me to Christ told me this one, one afternoon. He said, Eric, if it rots, rusts, collects dust, or dies, don't give your life to it. Now, start making a list of things that doesn't fall in one of those four categories. It rots, rusts, collects dust, or dies. Don't give your life to it. Don't give your life to it. We oftentimes, and again, I am the guy in the crosshairs here, we oftentimes run around busying ourselves, tiring ourselves, but we neglect that which is better. We are the Martha, scrambling about the kitchen, doing what Jesus said were necessary things while neglecting what Jesus said was the better thing, that which Mary was doing, namely sitting at Jesus' feet. We get so busy doing other things that the best thing gets moved to the back burner. And one day becomes two days, and two days becomes three days, and three days becomes a week, and a week becomes a month. I mean, input equals output, my friends. You put bad gas in your car, 
and your engine idles roughly. You get no performance. You get no horsepower. What makes us think that our spiritual engine is any different? You put bad gas or you don't put gas in it at all. And it just doesn't run long. It just doesn't run long. I fear that all too often we try to fit God in instead of orienting our lives around Him and then making all lesser priorities subservient to the priority of paramount importance, namely that of knowing Christ. And then when we've done that, we, we wonder why we feel spiritually drained. We wonder why we feel like we, we have a continual low-grade discouragement. Well, friends, it's because we've neglected that which is better. We've, we've exchanged that which might be necessary for that which is better, Jesus said. When we neglect the spring of living water, it no, it's, should be no surprise to us that we're thirsty. When we neglect the bread of life, it should be no surprise to us that we are hungry. God has given us all the equipment that we need to know, to love, to obey, and to serve Him. What? He's given us a new heart. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us His divinely revealed Word. All the equipment that we need to know, love, and serve Him has been freely given to us. That's why Paul is praying this prayer that we would understand what we've been given, that we would grow in a knowledge in it, that it might have great impact and influence upon our lives. The same man that discipled me told me this one time. He said, just as it is impossible to have an encounter with a Mack truck and not be forever changed, so it is also impossible to have an encounter with the God of the universe and not be forever changed. Are we seeking to know him? He's given us all the means of grace that we need. Let's not neglect them. Now, it's important that we make a critical distinction here. And I wish I had more time to discuss this, but there there is a massive difference, friends, between knowing about God and knowing God. Knowing words on a page will not save you. Knowing Christ personally will having all that he has accomplished credited to our account by faith will save you. But simply knowing words on a page won't get you to heaven. Jesus drew a line in the sand, so to speak, in Matthew chapter 7, a familiar text to us when he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, and by the way, those that are saying, Lord, Lord, those are very religious people. People who know Bible stories. People who were probably around, may have even been an eyewitness to Jesus healing the paralytic. I mean, the guy picked up his mat and he walked. I mean, some of the Lord, Lord people in Matthew chapter 7 were probably standing around the house when that happened. Very religious people. But Jesus goes on. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's fruit, by the way. Doing the will of the Father who is in heaven, that's fruit. There's no such thing as a fruitless Christian. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and perform many mighty miracles? And then I will declare you plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Friends, I would submit to you that there is not more frightful language in all of the world than depart from me, I never knew you. The usual Greek word used for a casual knowing of something or someone 
is the word gnosis. It's the word that Gnosticism comes from. It has the idea of knowledge, of, of knowing. That's the usual Greek word for just a casual knowing. But here in verse 17, Paul intensifies that word. He adds the little Greek preposition, epi, three little words, E-P-I. Adds that little Greek preposition on the word gnosis. He prays that the Ephesians would be growing in an epinosis of God. That is not just a casual knowing. That's not just knowing words that are printed on a page. That's a depthy, abiding, thorough, intimate knowledge of God. Now, as we think about those adjectives, are they somewhat descriptive of our pursuit of knowing God? Depthy, thorough, abiding, intimate. Does that describe our pursuit of God? I can tell you that it describes my pursuit of many other lesser things. Unfortunately, does it describe our pursuit of God? Paul's desire is that the Ephesian believers and us likewise will be growing deeper and deeper in our knowledge of God. That is indeed the greatest need of the church to know Christ, to know him, to be found in Let me suggest a book to you. I believe this book is in our library. If not, you're certainly welcome to borrow my copy, though I only have one. J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. This is is worth its weight in gold, so to speak. Relatively brief, accessible, readable, but will have a profound impact uh, on your life, I trust, if you read it. I would commend it to your uh, growing, what I hope is a growing Christian library. Uh, But what Packer does in this book is he distills uh, what it means to know God. I read the first five or six chapters this week, the first 65 pages, and it's an absolutely paradigm-shifting book. Uh, But what Packer does is is he distills what people who know their God look like. These are four things that he notes. This isn't on your outline. This is a freebie. He says that people who know their God have great energy for God, Great zeal for God, okay? We're, we're not to grow weary in well-doing. We're not to be zealous, have great energy for God. People who know their God have great thoughts of God, lofty thoughts of God, a high view of God, growing high view of God. Third, they show great boldness for God. Doesn't mean that we're not timid at times, sinfully timid, as am I, but there is a, a growing in boldness for God. And then fourthly, a great contentment in God. Godliness with what? Contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. People who know their God have a growing high energy for God, have great thoughts of God, show great boldness for God, and have great contentment in God. Is that true of us friends? Knowing God, and again, there's, there's infinitely more that we could say here. We've, we've, this is literally the scratch and sniff version. Here. There's more that we could say by far about knowing God intimately. But that's the overarching request that Paul makes for this young, growing, vibrant church in Ephesus. And it's the same thing that he would be praying for you and I here today that we would know God, know Christ. But he continues in verses 18 and 19 to remind us of three particulars. He narrows, knowing God is the umbrella request. Now he narrows and gives us three specifics or three particular things that we need to be growing in a knowledge and an understanding of. This is number two on your outline if you're taking notes. We need to know the hope 
of God's calling. The hope of God's calling. Look at the first part of verse 18. Paul says, Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. I love that phrase there, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. What is Paul asking for here? What is Paul requesting? He's simply asking that the believers in Ephesus would be, would be given, would be granted spiritual insight to grasp the truth of God's saving purposes. Verses 3 through 14, here are your spiritual blessings. Now Paul transitioned and begins to pray that we would understand them, that we would be growing in them, and that we would live in light of God's saving purposes. Notice that Paul refers to the eyes of the heart and not the eyes of the mind. Again, it's possible for a person to be incredibly brilliant intellectually while possessing absolutely zero spiritual insight. It's the, mind, or it's the, the eyes of the heart, not the eyes of the mind that Paul points us to here. Yeah, the Bible places a huge premium on the heart. Oftentimes we think of the heart as just being kind of the seat of feelings and emotions. But Scripture presents the heart as the core of your being. It's who you are, your heart. Wise Solomon said, guard your heart and guard it with all vigilance." In other words, stand watch over your heart. For from it flow the springs of life. God himself reoriented our thinking in 1 Samuel 16, 7 when he said, man doesn't look at the th- God doesn't look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When you see they, by the way, in the Spirit, or in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, it is implied they and they alone. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they and they alone shall see God. Remember what Paul said in Romans 10, 9? He said, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead, you'll be saved. He doesn't say believe in your mind. He says believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead. Now, I don't want to create an, an, unnecessary, an unnecessary false dichotomy here because we're also told to be renewed in our mind, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so the mind has great significance, and there's great weight placed on what we do with our mind. I mean, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4 that we're to think of things that are pure and noble and lovely and righteous and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. All those things have to do with the mind. But it is interesting here that Paul tells us, or prays rather, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. You see, when we're born again, we see with spiritual eyes for the first time. And we need to be growing in an understanding of what it is that has been done for us. Think about a newborn for just a second. Maybe some of you have a little one in your home. At birth, they pass from the confines of darkness and into light for the first time. For the first time, their sight is filled with light. But it's interesting to know that for the first several months, an infant can only focus on objects that are 8 to 10 inches from their face. But as that young child continues to grow and mature, so does their vision. At birth, they see light, but they grow in their ability to see with clarity and to understand what it is that they're seeing. Depth 
perception, colors, all at focus, that all, visual acuity all becomes sharper. The same is true of us spiritually. And that's what Paul is praying here for this young, growing, vibrant church in Ephesus. And the same could be prayed for us because all Scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness. Just as Paul's words were applicable to his original hearers, so they are applicable to us today. Just like that newborn child, we need to be growing in spiritual sight, that the eyes of our hearts will be enlightened in a growing measure. Paul says, with a heart that now sees clearly, look at what he prays here. He says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Love that word called there. As a matter of fact, uh, where we get the word church comes from that word called. The Greek word for church is the word ekklesia. Ekklesia, it's actually a combination of two words in the original language. It's the Greek preposition ek, which means out of or from, and the word kaleo, which means to bid or to call. So the church is literally the called ones, those who have been called out. Peter uses the exact same verb to refer to the redeemed church of Christ when he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who, here's the word, called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. You see, there are some callings this side of eternity that offer no hope, but our calling in Christ offers us all hope. We have been called to an incredible hope in the gospel. Our calling in Christ assures us both of a joy-filled present and an indescribable glorious future. Now, a joy-filled present, that doesn't mean that life isn't fraught with difficulties and challenges. Jesus never said that it would be, but he did say, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So there's a sense in which it doesn't matter what our circumstances are, Joy can't be taken from us. We look forward to an indescribable, glorious future. Oh, that we would know the great hope that is included in the gospel call that we by grace have obeyed. It's important to note here that hope in your Bible, that word hope, it's not just a feeling in this context. It it doesn't mean, well, I hope so. You see, many people attach their hope to things that in the end leave them empty-handed and empty-hearted. You ever gone to the beach and grab a handful of sand? I mean, you just move your fingers and you lose it. It, You're left empty-handed. You attach your hope to anything that rots, rusts, collects dust, or dies, and it, like sand in your hand, will vanish. But there is a hope the gospel gives us that will not leave us empty-hearted and empty-handed. Biblical hope carries the idea of confidence and blessed assurance. You see, before we came to Christ, we were lost and we were without hope. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, we'll be here shortly, he says, remember at that time, speaking about before we came to know Christ, remember at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope. But Peter tells us that now in Christ, we've been born again to a living hope. You see, Jesus Christ, our crucified, risen, ruling, reigning, and soon returning King, He is our hope. Our hope is grounded in the infallible promises of God's Word. 
Our hope is the fervent yearning and confident expectation and patient waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises. We wait with eager expectation for the day that we stand before God in all of His glory, clothed in the righteousness of Christ with resurrected, incorruptible bodies, freed from the presence of sin. We look forward to that day. That is our hope. We, we look forward, we long forward to the day when God brings to completion the work that He started in us. Philippians 1.6 But friends, let me encourage you with this fact. We're not just sitting on our hands waiting for a hope that is future. That future hope has glorious implications on our lives right here today. The wonderful hope that we look forward to the culmination, the fruition, the completion of all of God's promises, the yes and amen of all of God's promises coming to fruition in Christ, that future hope gives us great hope for today and influences our lives for today while we wait. Paul told Timothy this, he said, the grace of God has appeared and it brings salvation for all people. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age as we wait for our blessed hope. See, we're not just waiting for something that's future. What is future encourages us to be holy today. The very fact that we'll one day see Christ and be like Him should motivate us to live like Him today. Number three on your outline. We need to know the riches of God's inheritance. Paul goes on to say that we might know the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. I love this short phrase. It makes my heart sing, as a matter of fact. It's interesting to note, though, that Paul isn't praying that that the believers in Ephesus would know and understand their glorious inheritance. He's already said that in verse 11. Look back at your Bible for a minute. In verse 11... Paul spoke about our glorious inheritance. The inheritance of the redeemed. What Paul has in view here, in verse 18, is God's inheritance. The riches of His, God's glorious inheritance. Where is God's glorious inheritance, Paul? He tells us it's in the saints. It's in the saints. The church, those who are called out. He wants us to be growing in an understanding and an appreciation that we are a part of God's great wealth. Just as man's wealth brings him great glory, so God will get the glory from the church, which he has invested in infinitely. We, the redeemed, the purchased, those who have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. God spared no expense in the salvation of our souls. We are, in a sense, the riches of God. And that should not puff us up. That should humble us. Because it's not because of us, it's in spite of us. Our God is in heaven. He does what He pleases. He saved us because it pleased Him to do so. He's made us His treasured possession because it pleased Him to do so. He's claimed us because it pleased Him to do so. We are His wealth because it pleases Him. How humbling is that? Remember all the possessive language that I mentioned that peppers verses 3 through 14? 
God chose us for himself. He adopted us for himself. Christ redeemed us for himself. We've obtained an inheritance, but we are also an inheritance for himself. For himself. I mean, think about this. God owns the heavens and numberless worlds, but yet we, according to Scripture, are his treasure, his treasured possession. The redeemed of God are worth more than the four corners of this universe can hold. Wow. Humbling. God prays that we believers would know and appreciate the extraordinary value that God places on us because he purchased us at the expense of his own son. That should elicit in us immense overflowing gratitude and a deep abiding humility as we contemplate the grace that has been lavished upon us in the Beloved. Let's land the plane this morning. Let me turn your attention to verse 19. And subsequently, the fourth thing that Paul says, we need to know and to understand. And praise that the Spirit would make known to our hearts. And that is, we need to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power. Get what Paul says. He says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of his might. You see, Paul has already prayed, here's the umbrella prayer, that we would know God intimately. Well, how specifically, Paul? Specifically, that we would know the hope to which God has called us. Specifically, that we would know how greatly prized we are as his treasured possession. And lastly, that we would know, understand, and live in light of his power that works on our behalf. Verse 19 is packed with powerful language. Powerful language. Paul speaks of the immeasurable greatness of God. And then what he does is he layers on synonym after synonym after synonym to help describe such greatness. Look at that word, power. So he speaks of the the immeasurable greatness of God, and then he talks about his power. That's that Greek word dunamis. We talked about it last week. It's where we get our English word dynamite. It means explosive, powerful. That's who God is. That word working there, it's the Greek word energia. It's where we get our English word energy. It's powerful. And then he speaks of God's might. So if we want to know what God's immeasurable greatness is, it's the sum total of all of his power, all of his working, and all of his might. And it's personal, my friends. Look at your Bibles and see who it's directed at. It's toward you. It's toward you. All of that power. All of that working, all of that might is toward you in accomplishing all that Christ has accomplished for us, applying all that Christ has accomplished to us, and then making all those promises, yes and amen, when Jesus Christ steps back into our world and God sums all things up in him, our head. When he completes the work he started, What Paul wants us to know here is that God has the power to do what God said he would do. To to claim to have all power, but to not be able to fulfill that promise is useless. But God claims to have immeasurable power. And that gives to us, the redeemed, great confidence that he will make good on all of his redemptive salvation promises made to us. 
You know, I was thinking about this in my study this week. We, we measure everything. You go to the gas station and fuel is dispensed in gallons. You go to the grocery store and produce is weighed in pounds. You purchase a house and it's measured in square footage. I mean, scientists measure the smallest particles of matter and astronomers measure the distance between planetary bodies. We are well accustomed to parameters and to measuring things, but we scarcely have the ability to conceive of that which is immeasurable. Yet God's power toward us is immeasurable. Paul wants us to have absolute surety in our hearts that God's immeasurable power is able to bring all of his saving promises to their ultimate fruition. And it's toward us who believe. As Christians, we need God's power. In and of ourselves, we're weak, we're feeble, we're frail. Yes? Can I get a... That would be a good place to insert an amen. Yeah. We're weak, we're, free, we're feeble, and we're frail. I mean, Jesus told his disciples, the spirit is, is willing, but the, the flesh is weak. God made us that way so that we wouldn't look to ourselves as our own source of sufficiency, though we are tempted at every moment of every day to do so, aren't we? We're tempted to look inward instead of outward. To look at ourselves as our own source of sufficiency instead of looking to the one who possesses immeasurable power. And Paul tells us that we're just jars of clay. There's nothing special about the jar, but what the jar possesses is special. Now let me take you back to verses 13 and 14. God has given us in the Holy Spirit a deposit in the jar of clay guaranteeing the inheritance that is to come. We, we are weak, my friends, but our God is strong, dynamite strong. We're just ordinary vessels, clay jars. It's what fills the jar that is extraordinary. Paul prays that we would know, that we would understand, that we would live in light of God's immeasurable power. I mean, the same powerful God who laid the foundations of the world the same powerful God who created the starry host and who calls them out at night like an army by name. The same powerful God who tells the oceans you can come this far and no further. It is His immeasurable, or his immeasurable power in Christ that is toward us. That's the confidence we have that God will bring to completion all of His saving purposes. How about you? You know this God of the Bible? Or do you just know words on a page? And everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you know him by faith and repentance? Have you, like Jesus said, taken up your cross? And are you following him? Charles Spurgeon once said, and we'll end with this this morning. He said, the knowledge of God is the great hope of sinners. Oh, if you knew him better, you would fly to him. If you understood how gracious he is, you would seek him. If you could have any idea of his holiness, you would loathe your self-righteousness. If you knew anything of his power, you would not venture to contend with him. But if you knew anything of his grace, you would not hesitate to yield yourself to him. Do you know that God of the Bible? If not, repent and believe right where you sit.